Good afternoon and welcome to the seventh in our series of Urban Transport Next Conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, including Transport for London, but also for other big city regions like Greater Manchester, the West Midlands, Tynanware and all the other major metro areas serving over 20 million people. As well as being a body that thinks ahead about what next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and can and do learn collectively from these events. And we are particularly pleased today to have as our guest, Andy Byford, Commissioner of Transport for London. And we'll learn more about Andy over the course of the next hour. And delighted also that our interviewer is Joe Field, the Managing Director of JFG Communications and the President of Women in Transport. You can also be part of the conversation and you can be part of the conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting questions, keep them short and sharp via the questions box on the Zoom channel. You can also vote for your favourite question. Uh, We'll be picking those up in the final section of the conversation. And you can also use the comments channel of the Zoom. And of course, you can also use Twitter with the hashtag uh, UTGnext, hashtag UTGnext. And with that, I will hand over to Joe. Thanks, Jonathan. And hello, Andy. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to everyone in the audience for joining us as well. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I actually spent nine years working for Transport for London before I set up my consultancy. So I've obviously got the insider view of the, you know, the scale and the complexity of the challenges that TFL faces every day and the amazing job that I think you do to move millions of people every day. I I remain a big advocate for TFL and everything you do and particularly everything you've done to keep London moving during the pandemic. So I'm really, really pleased to be having this conversation today. I've got lots of questions for you, Andy. What I've tried to do is arrange them into themes to make it easier for people to follow. So we're going to start with a sort of general overview, introductory type questions. Then we're going to move on to the topic of diversity, which is obviously one of my favourite topics with my Women in Transport hat on. And then, of course, we'll talk about the pandemic and, and what comes next after us. And after that. And I know, obviously, that the audience is going to have lots of questions they want to ask as well. So as Jonathan says, please do put put those in the chat and we'll have time to bring in questions from the audience later on. So first of all, um, to, to kick us off, can you tell us how and why did you get into working in public transport in the first place? Well, that's a great intro question, Joe. And first of all, I should just say, uh, everyone remembers you with uh, great fondness at TFL. So it's a big shout out from your former colleagues. Oh, uh, thank you. You, you <laughs> certainly haven't been forgotten. Um, well, it's 32 years for me now. I, you know, I can't believe it. Where did that go? I, one minute I'm a spotty graduate trainee 
station foreman uh, at Regent's Park on the Tube. I started as a foreman. Uh, and somehow, 32 years, years later, here I am being interviewed by you as the commissioner, for, for, you know, for which I'm very proud. So how did I get into it? Um, in a way, partly by accident. I grew up in Plymouth in Devon a big Navy city, and I thought very long and hard about going into the Navy, actually, either the Royal Navy or the Merchant Navy, and um, for various reasons, uh, and didn't, and ended up um, uh, going to university instead. I studied languages at university, and um, I always had an interest in transport, though. It was always a it's partly in my blood. My my granddad drove a bus for London Transport for 40 years. He was at Loughton Garage out uh, in Essex and he drove through the Blitz, which is um, something we're very proud of as a family. And my dad worked for London Transport for a little while. So having toyed with various career options, I remember going to a careers fair. It was the day of a strike, actually, and the, the poor person in the in the um, LUL booth looked somewhat harassed and was very delighted when I said, well, I'm interested in a, in a career with you. And so, um, yeah, here we are, uh, 32 years on. It's taken me from the Tube to British Rail, or as was British Rail, uh, to uh, Sydney Rail Corp, the Toronto Transit Commission, New York City Transit, and now here. Uh, and uh, I've certainly not looked back. Uh, it's a passion I have for transport. Um, I've never um, I had a driving license. Uh, I believe in public transport. And I uh, very much um, you know, enjoy serving the public and being a public servant and doing my bit to keep... Uh, London moving and uh, for the environment. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to hear your your passion, Andy. And obviously, you mentioned spending some time in North America. So, what what were the highlights of the time you spent in North America? Do you think? Sure. Um, well, I was very proud of the, my time at the Toronto Transit Commission because uh, that was my first uh, CEO job. So. You know, they always say, funny enough, back to the Navy analogy, the commander always remembers their first command. That was my first um, job as the big boss, the uh, top of the pinnacle. Uh, you know, I've been the COO, Chief Operating Officer in Sydney Rail Corp, and that was great. But to actually um, run the TTC was both exhilarating and uh, and daunting, really, because you, you realize you are the boss, the buck stops with you. So I was very proud of what we did there as a team. Um, and that includes what we did uh, in terms of diversity, which, which I'll elaborate on when we get onto that section. Uh, but basically, as a team, um, we took a, uh, an organization that had been somewhat the butt of jokes in Toronto. It was, was suffering from all sorts of underinvestment and problems with uh, its reputation. Uh, and I remember one of the newspapers described it as a demoralized shambles in, in 2012. Five years later, having put together and executed on a, a plan which was anchored around a, a, a vision statement of a, tran a, tron a, start again, a transit system that makes Toronto proud. We delivered on five major projects. We really addressed basics and we drove up a lot of uh, uh, customer sat and, um, and um, punctuality statistics. And we won the APTA, American Public Transportation Association, APTA Outstanding Transport System of the Year Award. So I was very proud of that, the fact that we went from a shambles, not my words, a newspapers, to the APTA Outstanding Transit of the Year. Then went to New York City. It was a real dream for me. You know, it doesn't come much bigger than New York City Transit. And although I was only there for two years and, and left of my own accord and, um, you know, largely political reasons I left, uh, I was very proud of the fact that, again, we drove punctuality in that two years from a woeful, embarrassing 65% of trains on time. We took it up to over 80% by focusing on basics. We also put together uh, the fast forward plan uh, and secured for nearly $40 billion, $40 billion of uh, funding from Albany, the state capital. So there's still lots to do over there. 
Uh, but now I'm at TfL and goodness knows there's plenty to do here. Absolutely, loads to do here. I, I like the, the kind of zero to hero theme that you brought in with the, the Toronto work. Um, and, and you've mentioned obviously lots to do here. So mm-hmm. which, which of those learnings from Toronto or New York um, have you brought to London or do you want to bring to London? Sure. Well, I mean, I think I've made it a bit of a niche, actually, to go into organisations at challenging times, and they certainly don't come much more challenging than this, Joe. I mean, I knew walking in that obviously I was inheriting a, 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 an ongoing issue with COVID. And, and a big shout out to my predecessor, Mike Brown, the previous commissioner. He did a stellar job in the first half of the of the COVID crisis. Obviously, my job now is to, uh, with my executive and the whole team, the whole TFL team, take um take uh, TFL through and beyond the COVID crisis, plus to get the Elizabeth line open. Those are two top equal priorities that I've set the organization. So I think um, the main learning points from elsewhere would be, you've got to have a plan, you've got to have a vision, you must bring your people with you. And that was something I've always felt very strongly as as a manager, even as a duty station manager back in my very nascent days as a manager. And it's all about the people. Anyone can manage with a big stick or through coercion. That might work in the short term. It doesn't work in the long term. You've got to take people with you. And good managers don't just um, rely on rank. And, and I'll put it the other way. A weak manager or supervisor can only recor- uh, uh, have recourse to one thing. Uh, my hat's bigger than yours. I'm, a, I'm the boss. You're not. That's not management. That's not leadership. You have to take the people with you. So learning points from elsewhere. Um, create a compelling vision. Uh, get some consensus around that, get buy-in from across the whole organization. If you can get your whole organization pulling in one direction, notwithstanding the politics of the day and the other pressures, uh, there's pretty much um, no reason why you can't succeed. And already I feel that we're turning the ship at the at TFL on three critical areas, which I'll be happy to expand upon as we fight COVID. Thank you, Andy. Um, yeah, quite loud and clear there on having a vision and bringing people with you. So this now might actually be a good time to talk about your vision and your priorities, because I know you've set out five clear priorities for TFL. So, yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about the, these, please? Sure. And um, some of them obviously relate to, to COVID specifically. There's no surprise there. I mean, look, at the end of the day, COVID has ravaged TFL's finances. We're, we're reliant to the tune of 72% on fares through the fare box. It's unheard of in world transport. The norm's around 40 to 45%. So we're in a real mess in terms of finance. We've got to um, rely on government funding in the short term. So equal priority number one of the five is to rebuild our finances and to get so, to secure from government a long-term um, stable funding uh, stream. And that um, that is made up of both operating expenditure, operating uh, revenue, and also um, capital money. So uh, in the short term, we need some operating support. We believe we can be, get back to being self-sufficient within two, uh, two and a half years. Uh, but long-term, we need that government support for big capital programs, big ticket items like uh, new trains, new signaling, all things that actually help the national economy. Secondly, we must rebuild our ridership. Uh, obviously, uh, you can't uh, rebuild your finances without getting ride- riders back. So that means providing a safe, uh, orderly and clean environment to, to encourage customers to come back. Thirdly, we must deliver on the big ticket project. So uh, I've made it my personal mission to get the uh, Crossrail project finished and get the Elizabeth line open. That in itself will aid our recovery. What could be a greater 
a more triumphant symbol of London's emergence and resurgence from COVID than the soon-to-open spectacular Crossrail. But before that, we've got the Northern Line extension in September. Uh, we're working on other projects, the Barking Riverside extension of the Overground, uh, electrifying our buses. There's so much to do. The fourth, I just touched upon it actually, is to have a green uh, agenda and a green recovery. So we're very, very keen to push on with the green agenda and make our contribution uh, to improving uh, the environment for, for London as clean air within an electrified bus fleet. And fifth, uh, I really feel strongly that you, again, you can't do any of that unless you bring your workforce with you. So and a fifth equal priority is to create a fairer, more equitable, more diverse um, organization at TfL that, that addresses long-term issues around uh, diversity and representation at senior levels, and that gives everyone the opportunities to excel. I sometimes say to frontline staff on my many trips around the system, if I can make it from station foreman to commissioner, so can you. And I want an organisation where everyone can achieve their potential. Brilliant. That's good to hear. Thanks, Andy. Now, I'm going to come back to some of those points later, um, because you've kind of finished there on the point about diverse workforce. I think now would be mm -hmm. a good time to move on to my diversity questions. And obviously with my president of women in transport hat on, this is an issue that is, you know, it's very important to me. And, and actually it was an issue that was very important to me when I was at Transport for London as well. Um, I was heavily involved in driving forward TfL's 100 years of women in transport programme, which, which actually sparked a bit of a, a movement in TfL, I think, to on its own diversity journey and, and it really stepped up the game a little bit. And I've sort of watched from afar in recent years at uh, the different initiatives that TfL has been putting in place to improve your diversity. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested to hear what do you think TfL has done or is doing right in terms of improving its workforce diversity, but also what more do you think it can do? Sure. Well, look, first of all, um, Women in Transport is an organisation with which I'm familiar, albeit in effectively in the equivalents abroad. There's, uh, there's quite a, well, a very active um, participation in, in a similar forum in Ontario, in Canada. Uh, and I used to make a point, actually, of going along to the sessions because, you know, these um, particularly the socials uh, and guest speakers wasn't just uh, for, for, for women. Uh, I was on, always honoured to be asked to go and speak at that uh, forum. And so it's something with which I'm familiar and, and you do sterling work. Um, and then the second thing, just by way of uh, personal commitment, one of the things I was most proud of, and I alluded to it earlier at the Toronto Transit Commission, uh, the TTC has been in existence since 1921. Um, or prior to that, it was a, a different type of uh, transport uh, organisation. But it was brought together as the Toronto Transportation Corporation Gold Commission in 20, uh, 1921. Uh, so this year is its 100th anniversary. The reason I say all that is when I turned up in 2011, there had never been a woman on the TTC executive, ever, period. Ridiculous. Uh, when I left, on merit, and we did it on merit, we were a 50-50 split between men and women. And that made a massive difference to the, uh, to the to business performance, to the whole vibe of the executive. I think we made better decisions. Uh, I remember putting a, uh, the uh, chief people officer and the uh, IR director, uh, both women, very, very capable women. We put them in charge of the what was always going to be very tricky union negotiations to, to, to secure a, 
and a negotiated deal. We we secured four four year deals. They, they, they it was a killer combination of these two very capable women. So I'm personally committed. I get it. It makes sense. Um, here at TFL, I, I, we have um, some diversity on my exco. We've got women. We've got uh, people of color. But um, look, at the end of the day, the jobs by nowhere nowhere near complete. At the end of the day, we should be reflecting the city that we serve. Um, we have got a very active staff network group, which includes um, uh, so, uh, the uh, race and, and culture, ethnicity, always difficult to say, culture, ethnicity group, uh, with, uh, upon whom we rely for advice. We have a very active diversity and inclusion group and a very, uh, just lost actually, a very capable director, but we've just recruited a, um, a black woman of color who's superb, uh, going to be superb for us in terms of taking that um, dialogue forward. Uh, and we have been introducing things like anonymized CVs and um, uh, de-jargonizing our recruitment collateral so that it's less, uh, uh, how do I say it, um, less um, inadvertently biased towards white males. You know, it is a, a very white male dominated uh, or, um, industry. So we've tried to neutralize everything and try to anonymize everything. But I would be the first to say there's there's a lot more to do. Thank you. Yeah, it's encouraging to hear that you're, you're putting in place these inclusive recruitment practices and things like anonym, mm -hmm. anonymized CVs. And yep. yeah, I definitely remember some of the TFL job descriptions being very jargony and yeah. yeah now that you have things like gender gender bias um Training. checkers that you can yeah. put put mm -hmm. job descriptions through it's definitely good to do some of those things mm -hmm. um so yeah you mentioned having that 50 50 split um, is that so? Is that something you're aiming towards with TFL then? Well, ideally, yes. I mean, and, and of course, uh, diversity is not just about uh, gender diversity. There's uh, ethnic diversity as well. And uh, so, certainly, I want ultimately the TTC executive, and for that matter, its board should reflect the city that it serves. This is a hugely um, uh, ethnically diverse city. It's one of the great things about London. And, and TFL actually is an organization, you'll recall this, Joe, from your time, going down through the layers is actually very ethnically diverse, but it does peter out somewhat at the senior levels. So, um, uh, you know, you can't change these things overnight. I have a very capable executive and, you know, these people are, are quality people at the top of their game. Uh, but progressively over time, there are ways to, um, without being tokenistic or or I don't really believe in um, quotas, uh, there are ways in which you can legitimately change that dynamic and that makeup to the benefit of the organization. So um, we've, as part of that work, remember I talked about rebuilding after COVID. There's really three strands to that. Rebuild the finance, obviously. Rebuild the ridership, obviously. The third element that I introduced when I came is I said, look, why don't we, while we're at it, take the opportunity to re we've got to rebuild the morale of the organization but let's rebuild its capability while we're at it let's um come up with that compelling vision uh for that really galvanizes really inspires and motivates the workforce so that if you're good enough it doesn't matter what you look like what your background is you can achieve um the absolute full uh, height of your potential that's what we want and rather than that be a top-down uh, imposition from exco and and the somewhat um, white male oriented exco that we have we're going out to canvas what the workforce wants and that includes seeking ways in which we can legitimately and rapidly make uh, it a more inclusive organization so it's a work in progress one one thing that um kind of works against us you you, you can be a victim of your own success 
everyone now, diversity rightly is at the forefront of everyone's thinking, everyone being industry and businesses across the UK. Do you know what keeps happening? Real good quality women that we're promoting keep getting snaffled away by other organizations. So on the one hand, it's a it's a mark of success, but it does it can be frustrating. It's like, damn it, that person was destined for the top at TFL. Um, maybe we'll we'll lure them back in the future, but we're gonna keep at it and keep promoting and and selecting and and choosing the right people of talent. And uh, I really want that to be a very diverse uh, draw. That's good to know, Andy, thank you. And I, I'm glad you touched on the point about your your ex-co not being very diverse and, you know, actually being quite predominantly white male, because that's definitely something that I thought about a lot when I was at TFL and have continued to think about, because obviously there have been changes in personnel, but yeah, the ex-co does remain predominantly white male. So I'm just wondering what message you think that sends out to aspiring leaders. Well, I mean, look, again, at the end of the day, I can't just change that overnight. The only way I can do that really is to say, sorry, folks, you're all out of a job and we'll start again. But, you know, I have a very, very good team. It's been bequeathed to me by my predecessor. He built a great team. But but we all get it. We all aspire to the same thing. Um, you know, there will be there will be churn. People will leave. You know, I'm not going to be here forever. Maybe it's an opportunity when I go eventually. Uh, how about a female? Commissioner, heaven forbid. Why on earth couldn't there be a female commissioner of uh, TFL in the future? I'd love to see that. Um, and certainly where we've lost quality women, um, uh, for example, we had a fantastic head of buses, uh, a person in charge of uh, buses has just gone off to be managing director of one of the tops. Good luck to her. You know what? We, we, we'll see if we can entice her back at some point. You never know. Uh, maybe we'll succeed. Um, but certainly I wouldn't want my um, quality, you know, female and uh, ethnically diverse people within the organisation to see a glass ceiling. It shouldn't be that. Uh, you know, there's no, um, there's nothing where once upon a time there was this uh, view that it was a very male-oriented uh, profession. Now you've got plenty of uh, women in senior positions in uh, in American properties, transit properties, um, and in, in equally increasingly in tra uh, train operating companies. So um, this is a new era. Joe and uh, we've got to get with the times. I'm very pleased to hear you saying that Andy yes absolutely get with the times and um, it would be great to have a female transport commissioner in future. One, day. One other last question I wanted to pick up on diversity because at Women in Transport we have recently carried out a survey in partnership with the all-party parliamentary group for women in transport and this was looking at gender perceptions and experiences working in transport um, because really there's a bit, there has been a bit of a gap in knowledge. There's loads of women in engineering studies, women in construction, but we didn't have any robust data on the perceptions and experiences of women and men actually working in transport. Uh, and this was just to fill, to fill in the gaps about what we already knew anecdotally from our members. And one of the key findings from this survey was that over two thirds of women, so that was 69% of women in our survey, feel that the transport industry has a macho culture. Mm -hmm. So I'm just interested to get your views on this. Um, do you think the industry has a macho culture? And I'm including TFL in that because some of the women we surveyed work, work for TFL. So do you think the industry has a macho culture? And if yes, then what can we do to tackle that? 
Sure. Look, I mean, I think there is a bit of that. Uh, I think it's changing. And things like the advent of um, women train operators has absolutely, without question, changed, begun to change the dynamic. If you, if once upon a time, I remember as a, as a very junior manager, it could be quite intimidating even for, for a, a man walking into a, uh, into a lunchroom of um, typically white men who'd been on the job a long time. There was a bit of a macho culture. You know, we know how to uh, drive trains, or we're the mechanics around here. We're the engineers. Um, uh, really, the the place for either graduates, because I remember uh, graduates weren't particularly popular on the tube. Um, graduates, your place is somewhere in the office, uh, you know, typing things or doing customer service. Uh, and for women, it would be probably pretty much the same. That dynamic's really changing now. You've got female train operators. That's certainly changed the and station staff on mass. Actually, I think that changes the dynamic of the the actual workplace. And increasingly, uh, with the just different management styles and capabilities of women, um, and for that matter, people of colour uh, with whom others can empathise, um, you are again seeing that dynamic begin to change. Not just in uh, lunchrooms or on the very front line, but also throughout all layers of the organisation. So I'd say, yeah, there's still a bit of a, it's not just macho. I've thought sometimes in some organizations, I've been almost a militaristic um, uh, and, uh, culture whereby it's very hierarchical. Uh, you know, you'd back in my day, I remember very early days at the Tube, you, you know, you almost didn't dare go to the seventh floor of 55 Broadway. And, you know, at 55 Broadway, I remember when I first got there, there were no women's toilets. Why would there be? There was no women directors. Ridiculous. Uh, but now, of course, I mean, we've moved out of Broadway, but towards the end of my time there, that was rectified. But um, it was very much a, a, a hierarchical, almost um, run on military lines uh, organization that without question, not only favored a certain dynamic um, and, and demographic, sorry, a certain uh, demographic, but without question um, favored uh, that uh, that um, organ that demographic it favored it and it also encouraged it to uh, to continue so um, that had to be broken it is breaking it's not the job's not done yet uh, but already I think we're seeing a softening uh, of that uh, old regime and uh, that's without question to the benefit of the organization and the people we serve sure and actually you're talking about things like in the past there weren't even any women's toilets on the seventh floor of Broadway. That does show you how far we have come, even though there's more work to do. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and you know what, we, I'm not uh, beating up my own organisation here. It was the same elsewhere. You know, look at the TTC, mm. never been a woman exec. It's just uh, back in the day, it was kind of unheard of. They, you know, they'd be somewhere within HR, of course, but uh, not um, seen at the top table. But uh, when I left, as I said, we had 50-50. I had a chief of, my chief of staff, which is always a difficult job because the chief of staff is a bit of an enforcer. Uh, you know, you've heard what the CEO wants, uh, you, you fellow directors, we're sitting in this room until we get it done. I had this fabulous, tenacious, intelligent, articulate, tigress of a of a woman who uh, I recruited from the city and she just did that job with a plomb. Uh, she she absolutely uh, got the exec into line. She was fantastic. Brilliant. That's a good story to hear. Okay, so I'm going to move on now and start asking you some questions about the pandemic because obviously that's you know hot topic. And as you say, you were you were brought in, you know, at in the height of the pandemic to turn things mm -hmm. around. So, and obviously, it's good to have the benefits of hindsight. So with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you would do differently, knowing what you know now, um, to protect staff and customers during the pandemic? 
Sure. I mean, look, um, at the end of the day, well, first, uh, the first point I'd like to make, and you, you kind of touched upon it in your kind intro, um, I'm very proud of the fact that TFL kept going. There's a very famous wartime poster of, why, of our predecessor organisation, London Transport, that features a bus, a tube train and... Uh, a tram and it's got searchlights and it's all very it's sort of 1940s imagery and it says London Transport we kept going I've asked for an update of that poster because uh, this is our moment in the spotlight TFL we kept going we haven't given up uh, it's ravaged this organization and I don't just mean financially um, we've lost 90 colleagues 90 valued wonderful human beings with families have um, have been lost uh, with COVID you know maybe not directly but they 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 came into the job and they got COVID so there's a possibility so look uh, 90 people that we mourn to this day um, and uh, so I guess you know you, you you do look back and could we have done any more uh, anything um, more quickly. We did react quickly as an organization. We recognized that um, there was a cluster emerging in terms of uh, bus operators and working with the companies, the uh, contracted companies, uh, we rapidly sealed the cabs of the of the bus driver's um, workplace, you know, so the actual cabs were sealed up. Uh, and we took a whole, a whole load of other initiatives in terms of uh, segregation in, in workplaces and and other uh, defensive mechanisms. But I think the, the real learning point is, you know, at the end of the day, I think an earlier lockdown would have, um, would have helped. Uh, we followed government advice. We followed government advice on mask wearing, et cetera. You know, this, this was back in March before I joined. I joined in June. Um, but um, certainly we want to make sure those lessons are learned because we're not out of the thick of this thing anytime soon. No, definitely not. Um, and you've also mentioned like working with government. Uh, so what lessons do you think you can take away from the pandemic in terms of working closely with national government? Well, you have to. I mean, obviously, we're working with them not only on the uh, on the health uh, aspects and, and, and very much uh, right now, in fact, in terms of the whole debate about what's going on with masks and uh, will masks be a requirement on an ongoing basis. But we work with government really closely on, on the other main topic of the uh, or the main impact of COVID, which is, of course, the decimation of our finances. Uh, and that has really coloured my tenure so far, uh, really having to fight to get funding for TfL because literally at one point, you know, Joe, here's an interesting stat for you and the, the listeners and watchers, viewers. At one point, uh, the ridership on TfL on the subway, the, uh, the tube, sorry, I still use Americanism sometimes, uh, smack, uh, on the tube, um, we were down to 5% of normal ridership. Those are down to figures, daily ridership that hasn't been seen since Victorian times. But we we did that. We asked customers to stay away such that we could keep the capacity for critical workers. And that campaign worked really effectively. But of course, the trouble was it took the finances with it. So we're we're progressively negotiating deals with government. We've secured something like one, two, three, four, four maybe five deals to date, just under five billion pounds worth of funding. Um, that's good. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can't really run a 10 billion pound organization on six month deals. We really must get that long-term deal. So um, I'm working with government all the time, primarily the DFT, but also the treasury and number 10. And we're fighting to get a uh, fair settlement for TfL uh, because as I keep saying to government, at the end of the day, you can't have a national recovery without a London recovery and you can't have a London recovery without a viable transport system. Don't see us as the problem, see us as part of the solution. 
you want government, you want a job, job fuel, uh, uh, infrastructure project uh, fuel jobs led recovery. We can help you with that. We've got plenty of projects. You want a green recovery. We can help with that. Let's electrify our buses. And number three, you want leveling up. We can help with that. We buy our buses in Scotland. We, we buy our trains. They're being made new Piccadilly trains in East Yorkshire. We buy our steel in Scunthorpe. So investing in TfL makes sense. So I, I have the government on speed dial, Joe, rest assured. <laughs> I bet you do, Andy. And yeah, I mean, I'm glad you, you touched on these funding deals and obviously the, the latest one, again, very short term. So mm-hmm. how is, doesn't that just make it completely impossible for you to plan for the future? Well, it certainly doesn't make it very easy. I mean, um, it, it is, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's um, its just suboptimal. It's, it's most certainly not the way to go about investing in transport, because with a short term deal, you, you can't really give uh, contractors, potential suppliers, the, the confidence that they need. And, and so they factor in risk. So I, my argument is that ends up costing you more in the long run, because if they think that, oh, hang on a minute, uh, these, this uh, client can't commit to us, they might factor in risk. Um, secondly, you can't really let term, let long-term contracts because we have a, a fiduciary responsibility to not, um, you know, incur costs that we can't pay back. Uh, so again, it, it forces short-termism. Uh, it's also affected our credit rating. Just the other day, TfL got downgraded two notches by Moody's, one of the three credit agencies with whom we deal. Now. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that's not good news because that means that the cost of borrowing potentially is more. So for myriad reasons, we're saying to government, okay, you know, at the end of the day, we're not tone deaf. We get it. The country is in dire straits. The country doesn't have, um, you know, has been similarly affected. There's not uh, infinite amounts of funding. So I do get uh, that um, the government will want to get through the comprehensive spending review in autumn before it can maybe commit to a long-term deal. I get that. In the short term, we'll put up with short-term deals. But longer term, we can't carry on like this. We must get to a sensible funding solution with government to our mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. Sure, I agree. And I guess really what the pandemic has shone a light on is the fact that current transport funding models are not fit for purpose. So So what can government and local government and transport authorities do to work better together to come up with a funding solution that does work for everyone. Yeah, well, just to put it into context, and again, I touched on it earlier, as I said, we, our funding model is, is basically broken because, you know, in good times, it just about worked. And to my predecessor's credit, uh, the tube was pretty much breaking even, um, which is practically unheard of. Um, but uh, again, COVID's driven a cart and horses through that uh, because we are reliant to the tune of 72% of, um, fun, of uh, funding through the fare box for, for our income. Contrast that with New York City Transit's around 38%. Singapore, I think it's about 40%. You know, that's the norm. So we've got to change that funding model. And you can't just gouge customers. You can't just keep putting up the fares. You know, there's a there's a there's a, a, a place for some fare rises to deal with inflation. And um, but I think we need to come up with a much more enlightened, long-term sustainable funding mechanism, which if you play your cards right while you're at it, 
you you address other issues such as um, congested roads and uh, clean air and uh, and a green led recovery. Because what we don't want is people to suddenly all jump in their cars and we'll end up back with gridlock and uh, toxic air. So my argument would be you need to come up with funding solutions like some forms of road user charging or um, you know maybe a levy on deliveries. There's a there's a debate going on at the moment about should there be a greater London boundary charge. Um, if you again, if you if you do that properly, you you get a, almost a win win win. The transport authority gets um, stable funding that enables it to plan with confidence and to uh, continue to invest and to improve the quality of the product. Which means you attract more people into transport. Which means fewer people get in their cars. Which means it's better for the environment. Which means there's less congestion. Which means the buses run more smoothly, for example, and therefore more people come into transport and you get more income. To me, there's a virtuous cycle to be played here um, the corollary is uh, doomsday and that is you go on the downward spiral not the virtuous cycle the downward spiral where uh, you know the roads get gridlocked the buses get stuck in, stuck in traffic people say oh you can't rely on the bus so I'm going to take my car so we end up cutting service and down you go we cannot go there we just must not sure okay and yeah, you've put lots of ideas in there for how, how these funding solutions could work. Um, you mentioned road user charging. So does that mean that there are plans to bring more of that in London, perhaps to reform the congestion charge? Well, look, we're looking at all options. At the end of the day, uh, you know, we are grateful. Let me just say on the record, we are grateful to Her Majesty's Government for the support we've received to date in the short term funding deals we've had. Um, but we do want to partner up for a long term funding deal going forward. And so what governments have said is they're amenable to that, but they do want to see us um, look at our cost base because there's two halves to this ledger, Joe, as you know, there's the cost of, of your operations and there's the revenue that you can bring in. So we need uh, we need to reduce cost, cost of operations in, and, and also drive up revenue from a more diverse um uh, field of uh, of options. So uh, road use charging is one option. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do. I, I love the Hong Kong model uh, where the MTR, the Mass Transit Railway in Hong Kong, um, it's kind of the opposite of most transport companies. It's a development company with a transport arm rather than a transport company with a development arm. They really max their property to, to leverage over uh, oversight developments, air rights. Um, it's a very enlightened model. And we'd certainly like to do some more of that, where I just visited just the other day um, a work site up at Black Horse Road called Black Horse Vale, where we're working with a contractor to convert what was a, um, uh, a station car park into uh, affordable homes for Londoners. So rather than sell it off, which we would have done in the past, a one-off fire sale, uh, we we build homes, affordable homes, with a contractor, with a, a, a client partner. And that means you get then an income stream, ongoing income stream from rentals, and you build more ridership. That's a much more enlightened uh, model that uh, I think we should do more of. So it's a package. Nothing's uh, decided yet. But what we do know is going forward, we have between some, well, at least a billion pound uh, gap in our budget uh, for now that needs to be filled by new revenue sources. Thank you for that. And it's good to hear about some of the things you're thinking of, um, particularly on the commercial development side of things. Yeah. OK, I'm going to move on to thinking about, you know, what what does London look like after the pandemic? Um, how, you know, is public transport use going to recover? How are you going to encourage people back onto the network or what are you doing to encourage people back onto the network? All right. Well, let's start with that one then. What are we doing to encourage people back? It seems to me 
uh, and my my um, my Exco team. Uh, there's three primary elements. It's got to be uh, safe, so socially distanced. It's got to be orderly, people wearing masks, and it's got to be clean. So we're putting huge efforts into all three of those aspects. We've been running full service or pretty much there or thereabouts throughout the pandemic. And that's raised a few eyebrows. You know, people have said, why are you running all these empty trains around? Because we, we're, we're, we want to maximize our capacity such that people can socially distance. We're applying hospital grade levels of uh, cleaning product and periodicity, so frequencies, uh, to keep the system clean. And, and we're not just um, doing that, we're checking the uh, independent analysis shows that it is clean. We've had Imperial College in uh, who, who uh, on a randomized basis, check touch points like, you know, gates and lift buttons and that kind of thing, and to do air sampling. And to date, in six rounds across the system, they haven't found a single trace of COVID. So it's a big shout out to our cleaning teams. And, and then the third thing is to make sure that it's orderly. And so we've put a lot of uh, effort into uh, making sure that people are, are doing the right thing, wearing masks, etc. Uh, in terms of what will the system look like going forward, um, well, we don't have a crystal ball, but we have very capable analysts and uh, modelers at TFL. You know, it's one of the jewels in the crown of our organization. And we've modeled five scenarios ranging from two polar extremes, neither of which will happen. They're, they're the uh, super optimistic and the super pessimistic doomsday. So uh, on, the one, on the one hand, you've got uh, London's finished, that's it. Uh, you know, no one's going to go back to work and uh, the centre of London will wither and no one will use the transit. I don't think that will happen at all. Uh, ranging through to the um, within six months, it's going. you'll never know that there was ever a pandemic and it will be as packed as it ever was. Again, I don't think that will be the case. We're, we're focusing on the middle option of five. There's a hybrid in there where public transport ridership will soften, um, certainly in the short to medium term. Uh, I, you know, I think some organisations may choose not to have all their people working in the office, uh, if you know, in some cases at all, or perhaps three, uh, three or four days a week instead of five, um, and travel patterns will change. We see more uh, activity potentially in the outer satellite uh, areas of London, um, or even the inners. You know, the sort of the the sub centres, your Harrow, uh, Stratford, um, Streatham. You know, those kinds of places. So we we will have to adjust our model to uh, to reflect that. Um, and, um, and tweak the system. But I don't think London's uh, done. London's faced huge challenges in the past. You know, I talked about the Blitz earlier. It always bounces back. It's a world city. It's very resilient. So um, I think certainly getting back to 80% ridership, maybe 90 in the, in the next 18 months is possible. Uh, but here's a sobering fact, Joe. 90% sounds great, right? Do you know what mm. that 10% delta represents in terms of revenue a year? One billion pounds foregone. So this is, this is mm -hmm. serious stuff, right? Uh, Ninety percent sounds great, but that's still a massive headache for us to solve. So, uh, as I said in my intro, lots to do. Yeah, absolutely, lots to do. And um, just moving back to one of the things you touched upon about, you know, how to encourage people back and making them feel safe and secure. And you mentioned making sure everyone wears masks. And and you've mentioned working closely with government on that as well. And obviously, we've had the Prime Minister's announcement about the great unlocking on 19th July and it's likely that the mask wearing will go so and this is bringing in one of the questions from the audience as well will you continue to enforce people well will you continue to ask people to wear masks and how would you enforce that if it's not a government policy 
Well, I mean, that's the rub, isn't it? If it's not government policy and it's not the law, then enforcement de facto becomes a lot more difficult. And I'll, I'll say what I said the other day. Uh, well, first up, it's st we're still looking at it. We don't have to decide right now. Let's see exactly what government conclude. Let's see exactly what they say on the 19th of July. But in the meantime, we're talking to other uh, parties. We're consulting with our customers. We're consulting with the unions, with um, business uh, we're looking to see what the national rail does because it would be kind of odd if you can come in on a mainline train into Charing Cross and then and not wear a mask and get onto the tube and have to. That that again won't make things any easier um, for um, for enforcement. Um, what we're trying to get the balance here is um, a, 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 around sixty from our polling, 65 percent of customers say they feel more secure if they if 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 everyone's wearing a mask. So we we should listen to our customers, um, but equally. I feel very strongly that I don't particularly want TfL to be this sole outlier because what message are you sending? Are you uh, almost subliminally sending a message? Careful, it's dangerous down there. You have to wear a mask still or it's dangerous on the buses. It isn't. Remember what I said about the cleanliness and everything else. So we're, we're trying to strike the right balance here. We want to make sure we give cost customers the confidence to come back. We need them to come back. At the end of the day, that's how you rebuild your ridership through confidence. Um, but equally, I don't want to create a situation where there's huge uncertainty and it becomes a bit of a, you know, almost a shambles because we're being yelled at to enforce something which is not that easy to enforce without the backing of legislation. So it's still a work in progress, Joe. We're, um, we're, we're, we're weighing up all the pros and cons, but um, it's not going to be an easy one to fix because uh, everyone you talk to has a different opinion. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, it's it's a it's a hot topic. I agree. Mm -hmm. Lots of lots of different opinions in the debate. Okay, um, I'm going to bring in some more questions from the audience in a minute, but just one more question I wanted to ask about your green recovery priority, mm -hmm. and you know what are the best things that TfL can do to support a green and just recovery from the pandemic. Oh, well, job one is to get the bus fleet electrified. We have nine and a half thousand buses. It's by far the largest bus fleet in the UK. Um, and uh, right now, they're all what's called Euro 6 compliant. So they're, they're, they're pretty clean anyway. But what you really want is the holy grail is to have them as zero emissions. So uh, it doesn't have to be electrified. We're, we're just trialing hydrogen buses at the moment. There's 20 uh, hydrogen buses being put in on uh, the um, route between East Acton and Oxford Circus. So um, we're, we're having a look at, uh, at that as a technology. Um, but th what will really make a difference is to is to progressively get the whole bus fleet um, uh, electrified or, or, as I've said, on hydrogen. Um, and that's going to take a lot of investment. But that's one of the cases we make to government because uh, government has an aspiration that the UK should be carbon neutral by 2050. That ain't happening without London, right? Uh, this is the biggest bus fleet and London's the biggest city. So um, our argument is um, that objective won't be met, but we could do that by 2030, actually. 2030, with whole-scale vehicle renewal and obviously connecting up the uh, garages to uh, charging uh, infrastructure. Um, but also... Uh, from a levelling up perspective, well, guess where we buy the buses? They're not made in London. They're made in Falkirk in Scotland, in Ballymena, Northern Ireland, in uh, the Guildford in Surrey. I think Leeds, there might be a, a factory as well. So that's levelling up in my book. You know, we're, we're providing uh, quality work for people in the regions. But also um, the other uh, the other factor there is if you were running a, fa a production line in somewhere like Ballymena, 
you wouldn't set it up for a small municipality of 100 buses, but you would for a TfL, that's nine and a half thousand buses. So then the small municipality can follow on from that. That's how you get um, volume. So um, there's lots of other things that we can and should do. We're, we're buying our power now from more sustainable sources. You know, we're really uh, making an effort on that on that front. We're looking at all aspects of our operation. Uh, our um, taxi fleet is progressively being electrified. We're looking at putting in, or we are putting in, not just looking at it, putting in more charging points across the system. We installed 300 rapid charging points across London just last year. Um, and we're looking at our own facilities. Can we have more solar panels? Can we have more um, in terms of um, uh, uh, carbon reduction at, at, at the places that we operate? So it's, a, it's, um, it's something that we feel very strongly about. Uh, again, you won't get that decarbonised UK without London and definitely not without TfL. Thank you for that, Andy. And I do, I always like to hear the, the stories about the supply chain and how a TfL contract supports communities all over the UK. It's, you know, it's not just about London. Um, 55p of every pound is spent outside London. So, you know, where people say levelling up is binary, that it's either... London gets all the money and or, or the regions get all the money. It isn't. That's facile. It's got to be both. Uh, and because we spend so much around the regions, investment in London is levelling up. That's my submission. That is a really good statistic. Thank you for that. <laughs> OK, so I want to bring in some more questions from the audience now. Um, the first one is about uh, the finances. And given the current financial constraints, should investment be focused on maintenance rather than on infrastructure, new infrastructure? Job one in any transport system is state of good repair. Um, you must maintain what you currently have before you go down the road of expansion. And, uh, you know, that doesn't always sit well with politicians. Everyone wants the shiny new thing. Everyone wants to get the uh, scissors out to cut the ribbon. Um, but as I always say, it's a bit of a pyrrhic victory if you've got a shiny extension on, a, on an existing line uh, and the trains have to grind to a halt at the boundary because the tracks fall into bits. So what's the point of that? You must keep your existing system safe and in a, sta in a state of good repair. Um, a lesson from history or a you know, sort of siren voice is WMATA. Uh, and not everyone would know what WMATA is. It's the Washington Metropolitan Area Transport Authority. If you ever go to Washington, D.C., the, the subway, it's actually, it looks fantastic. It looks like something out of um, Space Oddity 2001. It's got these groovy stations. It was built in 1976. But they uh, built it and then it didn't bother or they didn't sufficiently invest in it. And progressively, they've had to close sections of it for emergency repairs for months on end. Uh, and that's not a good place to be. They've had some nasty accidents. So you must not let your state of good repair degrade. It's false economy. Uh, you know, if it's, from a TfL perspective, we've cut back on road maintenance. We had to some time ago. But you, you do that quickly to, to save a few bob, but you always end up paying more because now you've got a backlog and you're you're rushing to get potholes filled or to repair tunnel systems, et cetera, et cetera. So job one, uh, absolutely maintain your state of good repair across the whole system. Then you can look at expansion. Okay, sure, that makes sense. And then I guess related to that, although this is more about major projects, um, what is the outlook, do you think, for large investment in rail and rapid transits over the next five years? Well, look, we, we really want to, um, to continue in that space. I mean, certainly job one is to get the existing schemes finished. So 
Uh, as I said earlier, uh, Northern Line Extension is going to open in just a couple of months. Um, the Elizabeth Line is tantalisingly close. I was at Tottenham Court Road Station the other day. It looks amazing. Um, and we're into trial running at the moment and we'll soon be into trial lots. So uh, get the existing schemes done first. Um, and then uh, we absolutely want to push on. There's, there's, there's stuff to do. The Piccadilly Line trains were built in 1973. Um, Bakerloo are even older. They're 72. They're 50 years old next year. Uh, but we need to renew rolling stock. We need there's, the pick needs new signalling. Moving block CBTC modern signalling would make a real difference on the Piccadilly line. Um, what else? Progressive renewal of the bus fleet. And then, of course, there's um, two big ticket items, which for now have been put on hold. Those being the uh, extension of the Bakerloo line down Old Kent Road, down to uh, sort of Lewisham, Camberwell. Um, and then... Um, the uh, Crossrail 2, what used to be called the Chelsea Hackney Line, uh, which is the uh, southwest northeast diagonal, um, that, uh, that's been again put on ice, archived, not wasted money, the work's all been archived, just um, awaiting more rosy times in terms of finance. But both schemes are still absolutely viable, we, that we want to do them, we need to do them, but for now they'll just have to wait for a little while. So uh, I think there'll be a slight hiatus while we finish off existing jobs build that, um, rebuild the ridership and rebuild the finances, and then we can hopefully uh, get back to expansion again. Do you think there's going to be an issue, because I'm just thinking how there was like a lot of funding stopped in the 70s and 80s and Crossrail kept getting cancelled and put on ice, and then you have this sort of gap where the system becomes so overcrowded and it can't cope. Is this what's going to happen because Crossrail 2 has been put on ice as well? Uh, well, not if I can help it. I mean, look, you, you saw the state that you got into in the 1980s as a result of funding um, basically drying up and uh, you just cannot uh, afford for that to happen. So um, we're certainly going to keep pushing the Crossrail 2 case. We're going to keep pushing the B uh, BLE, the Bakerloo Light Extension. At the moment, they're out of the funding envelope for now, uh, archived, safeguarded. Um, you know, so we're doing the right things. We're safeguarding the routes. Um, but we absolutely want to uh, get going on those again. And we can dust off those business cases pretty quickly. Um, but um, certainly you, you, you stop investing at your peril uh, because ultimately, as I've said, you always end up spending more in, in my experience. Uh, it's much better to, to keep um, uh, renewing as you go. Sure. Agreed. OK, uh, we've got time for a few more questions from the audience. Um, I've got a couple here on fares and ticketing related. Mm -hmm. So firstly, do you support the continuation of the senior freedom pass? And yes. secondly, are fare evaders a big problem for TfL? OK, so on the first, yes, I do. Uh, there's, I mean, there's often you're asked to, uh, about um, under 16s as well. I mean, at the end of the day, there's always a bit of a controversy around some of these uh, these uh, apparent London benefits because some parts of the country don't necessarily benefit, although they could if they chose to invest in them. Um, and my argument is always, well, London's a very big city, so there's uh, there's people that actually travel longer distances. But I, I I am supportive of it, and certainly the mayor is very much in that space. Fair evasion is uh, not unique to London. It's a problem across the world. I mean, it used to be rife, or it still is a bit a major problem in New York City. Um, and uh, obviously, at the end of the day, that comes at a literally at a cost. You, you, it's revenue foregone. Um, I think you need to look at who is fair evading, why they're fair evading. You know, is your is your base fare too high? Um, you know, uh, uh, should there be more? Um, 
more discount schemes for people that really can't afford it because the the right answer can never be to evade the fare but the in some ways the simplistic uh, answer and also it's been tried and never properly um, succeeded is to just try and arrest your way out of uh, a problem um but but certainly fare evasion is is a problem um it's anathema to me because it, effectively every fare evaded is robbing the system um of, for often people of equal low income, but who do pay the fare. That's just not fair, literally, F-A-I-R. So, uh, yes, it's a problem. Um, I I think back to all my agencies I've worked at, it's always been an issue. Uh, There's probably a certain tolerable level, uh, but you certainly got to really watch it carefully because if you're not careful, it can really get out of control. Sure, that makes sense. And one of the points you touched on there was you have to look at things like, is your base fare too high? Do you mm-hmm. think the base fare is too high? No, I mean, the, the mayor, to his credit, has held the bus fare at pound fifty-five, and that's been the case for a long time. The reason buses are particularly important is because they serve a lot of areas of London where there is no tube, so there's no real alternative. And, and they also serve a lot of areas of London where there's genuine poverty and there's, there's very low income uh, serving, though, people who have no choice but to take public transport, probably going off to fairly menial jobs and in the service industry. Um, so they rely on the bus. You can't and you shouldn't. Uh, just uh, gouge them or, or try to keep putting up the fare. The, the single fare here on the tube is high by world standards. And, but then, of course, um, what we're trying to do is encourage people to use Oyster and contactless and, and gain the, um, the discounts that both of those schemes attract. I think we've got time for just maybe one or two more questions from the audience. One um, about communications, and obviously you've paid credit to the, the great job of all the frontline workers who kept London moving during the pandemic but um, how do you communicate with your frontline workers how do you make sure that they they hear all the the messages that you need to get to them Uh, well um, a multitude of uh, media actually uh, and and, you know it's not just me but I'll talk about what I do I do a lot of management by walking about I mean obviously we've had to be a little we've had to rein that in a bit because of COVID you know um, people are largely working from home where they, if, if they don't have to go in. Um, but I do a lot of visits. I really enjoy going to um, to visit every mode, ride the buses, go out on the clippers, go to the uh, Woolwich Ferry, the Emirates Airline, all of the different modes to go and talk to, uh, to speak with colleagues and show overt support for what they do. I make a week, uh, sorry, I make an update video every two weeks uh, to, to let the um, uh, my colleagues know what's going on. We use Yammer as a, a medium of uh, uh, communication. We, we have newsletters, um, uh, sort of face-to-face staff meetings. There's a whole multitude of uh, means that we use. We've got in-house magazines, and but I cannot stress how much I've, I value the face-to-face. That's how you find out what's going on. Um, you also demystify the exec. I want uh, I want the frontline staff to, to hold me to account, and I want them to know you're not some kind of mythical uh, character uh, strolling the 11th floor of the HQ building. You exist, you understand what they do, you empathise with what they do, and you bother to come out and uh, show appreciation for what they do. It's really important. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I think that actually relates back quite nicely to what you said at the start about you you need to bring people with you Andy and the way you're going to do do that is by getting out and about and speaking to them okay um we've got a couple of minutes left I know that Jonathan wants to come in and say the last words but I I think I've got we've got time for one more question 
of mine actually and this is this is one of my particular bugbears actually because I'm also a trustee of Living Streets so I really champion walking to school and the school run I think is a big issue because I mean some of TfL's own research pre-pandemic showed that a quarter of cars on the roads on London's roads in the morning peak are doing the school run so what what are you going to do to tackle that? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, uh, if people absolutely are adamant that they want to take their kid in the SUV, uh, I can't stop that. But what we can do is um, things that we're already doing, like safe school zones. So uh, really making the areas around schools uh, uh, low traffic um, or the low speed uh, in terms of the immediate environment to keep the kids safe and um, uh, making the, the the bus service as, as pleasant and um, frequent as we can, providing school specials. Uh, making sure that we also optimize and and promote uh, the use of low uh, emission vehicles so that at least if people are using their cars, they're they're not um, polluting the environment. So I think it has to be a package of measures, Joe, uh, and we've got work in hand uh, across the range of those uh, various interventions. Okay, so we've got just one minute left. So I'm going to invite Jonathan back now because I know he wants to have the last word, but I just want to say thank you so much, Andy. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and hearing all your insights and plans for the future. Fabulous, Joe. It's been my pleasure. It's been really great to spend an hour with you and I hope uh, people enjoyed and got some insight into what we're up to. Lots to do. I'm very proud of TFL. Big shout out to all the TFL colleagues out there. Great. And and thanks to Andy and Joe for what was a really a good discussion and conversation, quite inspiring. And I think it's exciting to have a CEO of TfL who's combines a real interest and passion for the frontline day job of operating the system, but also takes a progressive view on ensuring the industry better reflects the diversity of places they serve. And also that big picture view of a better London from better transport through better ways of finding funding for that system. And I should also say that TfL has been really great at working with other city regions as part of our network in sharing their expertise and knowledge. And we look forward to continuing to work with Andy and colleagues as we work through the rest of the pandemic and into supporting the green and just recovery we all want to see. We'll be taking a break over the summer, but we'll be back in the autumn. Uh, We're plotting some exciting events around one around child friendly cities. Another one, an interview with Lee Waters, the Transport Minister for Transport for Wales, where they're looking at introducing road user charging across Wales and the Halt with the Road programme. So watch this space. Um, Hope you can join us for those. In the meantime, thanks again to Andy and Joe and to everyone who took part live. And for those listening into the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube, Thank you and goodbye.